Good morning, everyone. I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. So glad to see each and every one of you. Before we jump into our message today, um, I want to update you on a project we talked about last week. About 20 years ago, together as a church, we kicked off a series of projects that we called Kingdom Assignments. And the purpose of the Kingdom Assignments was really to cultivate in the culture of our church a heart for the needs in our city. And those Kingdom Assignments changed our church forever. And through a series of projects we did together, they birthed so many of the important projects and so much of the work we've done together over the last 20 years, growing from here in the city of Boulder to even launching the Erie campus and most recently the Thornton campus, projects like the Heart of Advent and other initiatives that we have worked together as a church to meet needs in our communities. And we realize today the needs in our communities are staggering. The number of people who are hurting because of the Marshall Fire is huge. More than a thousand families lost their homes in a matter of hours. And we feel as a church that we need to do what we can and respond. And so last week we said we're going to launch a new kingdom assignment together. And because of your generous giving, our benevolence fund, which is used to meet the personal financial needs of members of our church and our community, is just overflowing. You have been so, so generous. And we want to make those dollars available to people in our communities who need them. And we've already given resources and we will continue to give resources to the families in our church who have lost their homes. But what we're asking you to do is take some funds that we have set aside and to give them away to your friends, to your neighbors, to your coworkers and family members outside of the walls of Calvary. We have all of these resources, and you know the people, and you know the needs. And so we're asking you to help us give it away. This week we've watched many requests come in, asking for help on behalf of friends. And watching those requests come in this week has been... um, I I don't really know how to describe it. I'm not sure what words to use because every application that we've received, every story that we've read is a heartbreaking one because of the amount of loss that exists in the lives of people. But at the same time, it's been beautiful to read your words about how you love your friends and your family members and your colleagues and how you want to help them, and how you're praying for them, and the things that you've already done, and the ways that you're hoping that God will be able to use these resources to be able to continue to care for them. So it's, I guess at the same time, it's heart-wrenching and heartwarming. In a week, we received over 70 requests, totaling more than $100,000. That's incredible. And it's overwhelming because of the amount of need that exists. We're ready to fund more resources as requests come in. And so if you haven't yet 
filled out a form, I would encourage you to head to calvarybible.com slash kingdom and let us know. And we'll get back to you. There's obviously a number of them for us to review and for us to, you know, maybe ask some questions, check in with, make sure that multiple people aren't asking to help the same family and that you personally know them and that you have a plan to follow up because we're going to ask every one of you to let us know in 90 days what it was like to take them a check or a gift card up to $2,500 and say, I love you. I'm sorry. I'm with you. My church is with you. We're praying for you. And we're trusting God that even a small gift like that, which pales in comparison to the need that exists, will be an expression of love to people who are hurting. And we're looking forward to hearing the stories from you of how this helped you minister and care for people. So we started by saying we'll, we'll give away about $100,000, but we're ready if there's more requests than that. And so keep asking, and we'll trust that God will keep funding our ability to be able to meet these needs. So thank you. Okay, today we are going to wrap up our series that we've called Beyond Blue. We've been in this series at the beginning of the year in some ways to help normalize that adversity and anxiety is a normal part of our life. It happens. So does depression. So does discouragement. So does feeling overwhelmed or sorrowful. And we, we just want to establish and make clear that, that the Bible talks about these issues and talks about them in the context of people who have great faith. And so it is not abnormal for those of us who follow Jesus to maybe feel like this. But as we've been in this series, we've tried to look through the lens of the Scripture to learn from people of great faith who have grappled with worry and despair and grief and yet have had hope. Is that even possible to have hope in the midst of tremendous hardship? Let's see. If you have yours with you, will you open your Bible with me to the book of Lamentations? I was surprised to hear Tom say that he was very excited to jump into Lamentations. I'm not sure that this is a book that usually excites people. You may have never read it, and it might be hard for you to find. Probably the easiest way for you to find it is to look in the table of contents that God put in your Bible. It's after a couple long books, the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, and then you'll find the book of Lamentations. Because of where it falls in the Bible, after the book of Jeremiah, and because it describes the events that Jeremiah prophesied and describes in the book of Jeremiah, many scholars believe that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. However, it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. But we do know that it falls right on the heels of the events that are described in the closing chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 52. So let's start there. If you turn to Lamentations, you just look left and you'll find Jeremiah 52. And in verse 12, here's a summary 
of the events that happen and then the response that exists in Lamentations. It says, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. This short book that's only five chapters, and each chapter is a poem, was written as a response to those traumatic events. They occurred about 600 years before the birth of Jesus in 587 B.C. The Babylonians invaded and then destroyed the city of Jerusalem, leveled it including the temple, which our texts describe, or our text described as the house of the Lord. If you were with us this fall for our study in the book of Hebrews, you know how critical the temple, the house of the Lord was to the people of God. It was the center of worship. It was the place where the sins of the people were atoned for by the priests. And it had been destroyed leveled, burned to the ground? How is that even possible? God's people had been disobeying his commands for centuries. There was a series of kings and leaders who had done what was evil in the eyes of God. And the people had been warned over and over again by prophets like Jeremiah and others who urged them, pleaded with them to turn their hearts back to God to follow his commands. And they were warned, if they didn't, that this would happen, that they would be invaded by the Babylonian Empire. And they didn't listen. And so through the Babylonians, God punished his people by destroying the city and then sending the people into exile. Now we have to be careful when we read the Old Testament and events like this and not make a false application to our experiences of suffering. Like sometimes we think the reason why we're suffering is because God is punishing us. This is a very unique circumstance in the history of God's people where the people of God were warned over and over and over again by his prophets that if they did not repent, God would execute justice on them. If you have called on the name of Jesus for salvation, God executed justice on his son instead of you. The wrath of God fully and finally was poured out on the son of God as he hung on the cross so that we would not have to experience God's wrath and punishment and justice. So let's be careful to think, okay, sometimes in the Old Testament, God punished his people because they disobeyed. So therefore, if I'm experiencing hard times in my life, it must mean that I am being punished by God. You think of the book of Job, another Old Testament example. Job, I mean, God brags about Job to Satan. He's upright. There's no one like him on the earth. He's righteous. He was a morally upright man, and he experienced suffering. But it was not linked to his faith. 
And so we should be careful to not link those two things together. But what happened in this circumstance was a brutal outcome. Before the city had been invaded and destroyed, it had been surrounded for years, under siege by the Babylonian army. And so the people who had lived inside the walls of Jerusalem had experienced the horrors of war for years. Death and disease were common, and then the city was destroyed. Imagine how devastating it would have been. This was in the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham. This was the city that the great King David had founded and built. This temple that was destroyed had been built 500 years before by David's son Solomon, the beautiful temple, and all of it now was gone. I can't even imagine the emotions of God's people, the trauma and the despondency that they felt, and the confusion about where God was in the midst of all of this. And then Lamentations comes. And what we learn from Lamentations is the response to traumatic events, to a public experience of suffering, and how the people of God respond, and how they felt, and how it impacted the author even personally. And there's no platitudes or cliches. There's no convenient answers to what what happened. Instead, it's raw and dark and oftentimes difficult to read. Here's just an example from verse 16 of chapter 3. The author describes how he feels in relationship to God, what he feels God has done to him. He says of God, He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. That's real, right? That's not convenient cliches. That's real and raw. A real and raw response to what has happened. And I think there's just an overarching lesson for us here. That when we experience hardship, whether it's personal or whether it's in our community, we have to recognize what's real. We have to make an honest assessment of the situation and try to give words to it. Sometimes in our personal life, that means raising our hand to say, I'm struggling. I think I might be depressed. I'm sad. And the truth is, when we're in the midst of it, it can be really, really hard to even give words to what we're feeling because it's so confusing. Sometimes we don't feel anything, and so we don't know how to describe our heart. But Lamentations, I think, gives words to the hurting, to the grieving. If you don't know how to describe what you're feeling, but you know you're sorrowful, Lamentations can be a good book to read to help you give words to what you're feeling. Because it's so raw and real, I think it's one of the most helpful books in the Bible for those who feel pain and sorrow, but don't quite know how to give words to what you're experiencing. Even its structure, 
the way that it's composed communicates something to us about suffering. So there's five chapters, each a poem. Each poem has 22 stanzas. And the first four poems are acrostics, which just means alphabetical poems. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew language. That's why there's 22 uh, verses. So if it was written in English, there'd be 26 verses in every poem. And it would go from A to Z. Some have said Lamentations, because of that, is, is almost describing suffering from A to Z in all of its fullness. It covers all the bases of suffering. And its structure, in some ways, even tries to bring order into what was chaotic. But by the final chapter, the author abandons that really organized alphabetical structure as if to say, I just can't make any sense of it anymore. And those of us who have walked through really deep periods in our life of sorrow know that that's often the case. Just when we think we've got it all figured out, it feels like our life falls apart again. Ever experienced that? Like I've experienced these momentary moments of, I don't know what else to describe it as, but like amnesia in the morning when I wake up or I forgot what happened for just a fleeting moment and then the pain comes back and I remember it. That's like what our author describes in verse 19. He says, I remember my affliction and my wanderings. Affliction is a common word in the book of Lamentations. And it's attributed to God, that God was the afflictor. And here the author describes the way that he remembers the the personal feelings of affliction and the way that he has wandered in the midst of, of these traumatic events. He constantly remembers it. And he remembers the wormwood and the gall. Wormwood was a really bitter herb that was crushed and then mixed together with another substance to create gall. Gall was mixed with wine and used as a pain reliever. But it tasted terrible. It was revolting. I guess you needed like a spoonful of sugar to wash it down. You might know that when Jesus hung on the cross, he was offered wine mixed with gall and he refused it so that he might experience the full range of pain and not have any of it relieved. But it was so bitter tasting, you wanted to spit it out, which I think is the way that pain and grief and sorrow feels to us. It's like something foreign inside of us that we want to remove, spit it out. He says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. This is the language of lamentations. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, in the middle of chapter 3, there is a glimmer of hope. You read two and a half chapters of this, and it's, if you're not already, it's kind of discouraging. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, hope. And it's in the middle chapter. And right in the center of the middle chapter, This is a common way that Hebrew poetry is structured. The climax is in the middle. It's different than what we think of, like you build all the way to your conclusion and then that's the big important reveal. But in Hebrew, it's in the middle. 
That's where it climaxes. And here too in Lamentations, right in the center of the book, in the center of that third chapter, there is a picture of hope that comes on the scene out of nowhere. Even the third chapter is structured differently than the other poems. It's still an acrostic, but it's even more complex. Every line of every stanza um, is, let me see how to say this, is, is still alphabet, alphabetical. So it's like, if it was in English, the first stanza would be three lines, A, A, A. The second stanza would be three lines, all starting with B, 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 and then C, 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 and so on. You imagine how complex it would be to write a poem as beautiful as this one is that's in that structure, but it almost shines a light on this part of the book, as if to say, look here. You can find hope here, which is a reminder for us that even in the midst of this kind of hardship, it's possible to find hope. Here's what our author says in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. It's a conscious decision made by a sufferer to cling to what is true, as we'll see. He purposely, emphatically calls it to mind when he's remembering all the pain and sorrow that he's in the midst of. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. An act of his will to remember what is true. Even though he's discouraged, he knows that he must, in the midst of that, call on what he can count on. When our world is crumbling, we have to bring to our mind the things that we know to be true. That's where we find our hope. But the truth is, there are so many other things we try to hope in, in the midst of sorrow. Other things we cling to and call on. Sometimes we call on coping mechanisms like substances or sex or spending money because it gives us a feeling, a thrill. And we try to call on those in the midst of hardship. Or we just try to call on or cling to the idea that maybe there will be a change in circumstances or perhaps we just avoid the situation and try to run from it and hope that, that we can cling to that. We often call on cliches, which are very unhelpful. <laughs> I'm certain I have used many of them over the years. Sometimes people say things that they think are going to help, like, it all happened for the best. I'm not really sure that it did. Or you should be over this by now. Please don't ever say that to someone. The Lord gives, never gives us more than we can handle. That's not in the Bible. And that might not be helpful to someone who feels like they have way more than they can handle. Or, I know exactly how you feel. Or don't be sad. As if our mission, when someone's grieving and hurting, is to move them from a state of sadness 
to happiness, and then we can check it off the list. There are things that are worth being sad about, sorrowful about. Lament is a biblical idea where we sit in a state of sorrow and recognize what has really happened. And it's right to be there in that place. I think many of you know that my family lives in the town of Superior. We were um, visiting family in California when we got the evacuation call on our cell phones. And we watched from California online uh, homes in our neighborhood and on our street burn. It was horrifying. Um, Two doors down from our house is destroyed. We live at the corner of two streets. Um, This street is El Dorado Drive. There's about 25 homes that are just leveled on that street. A couple weeks ago after we returned, Lindsay was driving with Beckett, our seven-year-old, and drove through a part of Louisville, which we drive through regularly, but we hadn't driven through yet since we had returned home. And, you know, I mean, the scenes are uh, very difficult to process and really, really hard to see. And Beckett said to Lindsay, Mommy, this makes me really sad. That's right. There are things in our world that should make us sad. And we should not view it as our mission to move people from a state of sadness to happiness. Happiness and hope are two different things. You can have hope in the midst of sorrow. And that's what our author discusses in the remaining verses we're going to look at today. So what does he call to mind? Look at verse 22 with me. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The first thing he calls to mind is that God's love never stops. Steadfast means unmoving, unwavering, steady, stable. We can count on the steadfast love of God. It doesn't change, it doesn't ebb and flow, it is not conditional. That's remarkable when you think that the author of Lamentations describes the love of God as steadfast when he has experienced what he has experienced as a result of God's judgment. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, even in the midst of this experience. That's incredible. God's love never stops. It's because the love of God is a fundamental part of his character. He has always been and always will be a God of love. It never stops. He shared love throughout all of eternity past with his son, with the Holy Spirit. And it was out of the overflow of their love for one another that they created the world and humankind so that humanity might share in their love with them forever. And it was out of the steadfast love of God that their plan to redeem a people for themselves through the death of the Son of God was created so that we might experience God's unending, never-stopping love forever and ever. 
But we can wonder about God's love when we're in the midst of sorrow and when life is hard. Like, does he still love us? Does he know what's happening in my life? How could this happen to me if God's love never stops? The Apostle Paul says in the final two verses of Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can stop the love of God. God's love never stops. He goes on to say that his mercies never end. They never come to an end. So he also calls this to mind, that God's mercy never ends, because the mercy of God is an expression of his love for us. Through his mercy, he cares for us. He has compassion on us. He provides for us, and he does all of it when we don't deserve it. That is the mercy of God. And there is an unlimited supply of it. We never run out of it. His mercy never ends. Paul links God's love and God's mercy together in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the most incredible display of mercy in the history of the universe. That God's mercy was granted to us because of his love even when we were sinners through the death of his son. That's the spiritual mercy of God. But there are day-to-day mercies that God provides for us in our life. There are so many ways that he is merciful to us. And it's good to be reminded that God's mercy never ends because when we're hurting, there's nothing we need more than God's mercy. I mean, how often do we say, I I don't know that I can make it through today? The good news is our author says, back in Lamentations, there we go, that the mercies of God are new Every morning. So if we feel like we've just, today's given us as much as we can handle, we can be reminded that God will grant us new mercies tomorrow. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God's mercies are new every morning. They'll be new for us tomorrow. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. And he is always faithful. Our author describes it this way. Great is your faithfulness. God is always faithful, even when it doesn't feel like it. And we have to remind ourselves of that truth when we're hurting. When it doesn't feel like it, we have to fight to remind ourselves that God is faithful. We have to call it to mind in order to have hope. 
Did you notice the change in language that happens? It says in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And then it shifts and says, great is your faithfulness. This is a reminder for us that God is personal in the midst of our pain. That he's not distant. He's not disinterested in what's happening in our life, but he is near to us. God knows what, it's, what it is to suffer. Jesus was described as a man of sorrows who is familiar with grief. So we do not serve a God who is unfamiliar with pain and suffering. And so he is faithful with us in it. We're not alone. We need to call these things to mind in the midst of sorrow. And we need to remind each other about God's love, mercy, and faithfulness when we're struggling. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. He is always faithful. Are those things we can hope in? Yeah. We can hope in God in the midst of hardship. The author closes this stanza in verse 24 by saying, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We don't use the word portion a lot, but this essentially means God's enough. God's enough. This is one of the great lessons that we learn in suffering. That God is enough for us and that we can hope in him when we're struggling. I wish we could learn that lesson on vacation. But for whatever reason, we don't quite learn that we can hope in God when we're laying on a beach. Whether we like it or not, I think we all know that suffering is one of the times, one of the experiences when we learn this lesson. We can count on God. We can count on his unchanging character, that he is enough, so let us hope in him. In just a moment, the team is going to come and we're going to sing a song inspired by these words. You probably know what song it is. Great is Thy Faithfulness was written by Thomas Chisholm in 1923, reflecting back on his life. It's not a hymn like some are that was written in response to some amazing spiritual mountaintop experience, but rather it was written as a simple response to the faithfulness of God throughout a lifetime. For Thomas, his had been a series of difficulties and disappointments. First, he was a school teacher and then a newspaper editor, and he suffered a breakdown after his mother's death and then couldn't continue working. He later found Christ and became an ordained minister, but due to poor health, had to leave the ministry, after only a year. And yet, near the age of 60, he wrote the words to this great hymn. And later in his life, when he was asked to reflect upon it, he said, My income has never been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years, which has followed me on until now. But I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God.
and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, which have filled me with astonishing gratefulness. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. He is always faithful. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy, for your love, for your faithfulness to us. I pray for any hearts in this room that are in the midst of hardship, that they would cling to what's true. Your unchanging character, your love, your mercy, and your faithfulness. I pray, God, you would be near to any broken heart in this room, that you would demonstrate that these unchanging aspects of your character are available to all of us who are hurting. And I pray you'd be present in the lives of people by the power of your spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.